When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. Hey, welcome to Beyond the Scenes, the daily show podcast that goes a little deeper into segments and topics that originally aired on The Daily Show. This is the best way to explain this podcast, okay? Look, The Daily Show is the club. You're already in the club. You got in the club. But this podcast is the VIP section, members only. You get a chair. You get a bottle with a sparkler coming out of it. You get yourself a little bit of an hors d'oeuvre. You get your own personal bouncer. And inside that VIP area, we give you a deeper scoop on all of your favorite episodes. Today, we are talking about a topic that Trevor covered earlier this year when former Miami Dolphins head coach Brian Flores sued the NFL after being on the receiving end of what he accuses the Dolphins of being discriminatory hiring practices. Give it a clip. For a long time, blackhead coaches in the NFL were just not a thing, right? In fact, between 1926 and 1989, there were zero black coaches, nada. Yeah, during that 60 year period, it was easier to find a black person in space than coaching in the NFL. And finally, in 2002, Johnny Cochran, yes, the OJ guy, I guess he was really into football, he threatened to sue the league if it didn't get its act together. And so the NFL created something called the Rooney Rule, which said that at any time that there's an opening for a new coach, at least one minority candidate has to be interviewed for the job. Which is cool, but now Brian Flores is saying that these interviews he's getting, they aren't real. These teams are just going through the motions to satisfy the Rooney Rule. And honestly, if you're gonna make someone come to a bullshit interview, the least you can do is let them know ahead of time. Let them know this is a bullshit interview because that way they can have some fun with it. You know, think how dope it would be to get to an interview knowing you're not gonna get the job. Then you can give bullshit interviews. So what would you say is your biggest weakness? Uh, I'm deathly afraid of footballs and uh, I also don't know what a footballs is. Now look, we don't know for certain why Brian Flores didn't get these jobs, but it's clear that the Rooney Rule, despite its good intentions, has done nothing to solve the NFL's black coaching problem. All right, we have some great guests that are gonna be on this show to help me dissect this a little bit. I'm here right now with CBS Mornings co-host, Nate Burleson. Nate, how you doing, brother? I'm good, man. I'm excited to be on this podcast. And listen, I'm behind the velvet rope. I got the the bottles with sparklers. This is the club. They already got in the club. Now this is the VIP. So thank you for inviting me into the VIP section. Don't get too excited. I know you're drinking Top Shelf Vodka, but... (laughs) It's really stoly. It's not. We switched out that great. It's boost. watered down. <laughs> also, a little later in the program, someone else with ties to the NFL will be joined by former coach for the New York Jets and the NFL's first black woman coach, Colette V. Smith. We'll talk with Colette a little bit later about her journey through the league and her perception of race relations. But, Nate, I want to start with you now. <laughs> You did some time over there in the league, as I understand. Play a little football, a little, bit, a little, little football, bit. defending a little football. Now, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 70% of the players in the NFL are black, yet there are currently only three black head coaches. Yeah. There are no black owners. Shout out to Byron Allen. I know you're trying. You're scraping together that Weather Channel money. You're trying to buy the Bronco. Byron Allen doing it. He's been he doing it big. Who you know buy a whole channel? Hot, a I whole Weather know. Channel. You know they was for sale. That brother dropped down three hundred million like it wasn't shit. Facts. <laughs> but can can you help explain the disparity in the league? You know, Nate, between the amount of black players versus black head coaches and owners, because you don't see that in the NBA. Right. And you definitely don't see that. It's 
there have been and there is a legacy of black managers on a regular basis through numerous baseball teams. But in the NFL, the disparity is huge. Why do you think that is? You know, um, it's frustrating because, you know, this is a hundred years of us fighting the same fight. And I'm not exaggerating that point. You have to take this back to early 1920s. Um, if you're not familiar with the name Fritz Pollard, you should be. Um, you just type his name in, you'll learn a lot about the origins of African-Americans trying to fight their way into this league and put their foots down. You know, he he had like a Herculean effort into opening the door. Fritz Pollard was the first African-American to be a black quarterback in the league, be a black head coach in the league. Um, this was before it was segregated. And then he went on to basically do his version of the Negro League for football, um, if you're familiar with the Chicago Blackhawks and the Brown Bombers, and then the league reintegrated. That was in 1920. Now, fast forward to- This is pre-desegregation. You you feel me? You feel me? So this was was 1920 when it was a lot different to be a black man, not just on the football field. We're just talking about in America. So he was fighting all types of fights. And then you had the segregation, the reintegration, and then football players being dominant on the field, not being allowed in the front office. But before we get to that step, we have to think about the perception of the black man in the NFL. There was a time where they didn't think a black man was competent enough to be a quarterback in this league. And they had to play every other position because we weren't smart enough in the eyes of some. Um, We had to fight that fight. And then black players, people that were in love with this game, raised their hand and said, you know what? I, I believe I can coach much more than just a position. I can coach an NFL team. The reason I wanted to give all of that background, because as a player, I didn't even realize that when I was drafted in 03. When I was drafted in 03, I was just happy to be there. I'm a young 21-year-old, and I'm sitting there trying to figure out how to establish myself as a pro and then have the longest-lasting career I can. Uh, but it, it kind of reminds me of, you ever seen the movie uh, Pleasantville? with uh, Tobey Maguire Mm -hmm. and he's in this new world. It's all black and and white, yeah. Yep, and then everything made sense when the color appeared. Um, There's a lot of parallels to that in double entendres, but same thing for me. I got in the league and it was black and white. Play as long as you can, make the money. And then when I started paying attention to the quote unquote color, like in the movie, it hit me. I'm looking at all of these black dudes running around, putting their life on the line. And then all these black players that go into coaching positions that are assistant coaches, that are helping out, that are assistants to the head coaches. But the lack of representation when it comes to head coaching jobs, it just wasn't there. And then simultaneously in 03, the Rooney Rule came. And now you think, all right, cool. The Rooney Rule is here, which means, in other words, you got to make sure you interview some candidates of color before you hire the person that you want to be your head coach. Make sure you talk to a couple blacks before you hire the person you was going to already go hire. Yeah, and and I thought that this was going to be a a significant change, Um, and this would be a shift, but it wasn't. Yes, there were more African-Americans being interviewed and brought into the facility, but like we saw in decades prior, these owners, these GMs, they were hiring who they want to hire. Now, let me be honest. I have to be transparent in this. As a guy who has owned a restaurant and launched businesses, I also understand when you own something, put your heart into something, and it's your business, whether it's financial or it's a hobby, you can't hire whoever you want. But when the representation of African-Americans on the field is as large as 70-plus percent, you can't help but to be frustrated with, with how you see smart, smart players that are capable and then they just get rejected year after year after year. And I've known players that I played with players that I played against that have been knocking on the doors for trying to be a head coach and just denied. So yes, has there been change? Of course. Have we seen more head coaches? Of course. I mean, how could we not? The years progress more black coaches are hired and fired, but at the rate that we want opportunities to happen for black coaches, we have a long way to go. Okay, so then to that point, then how has the Rooney Rule 
hurt aspiring head black coaches because when you look at let's just let's just go with Kansas City if we're talking modern era NFL and the home of Eric Eric Bieniemy who has been an yep. assistant to Andy Reid and that one offense, of the best offenses in NFL history year after year after year they've gone to two straight Super Bowls lost one they yeah. should have won that second one but nonetheless. If you and he had, contributes. you got to add that he contributes to the offensive game plan in play calling. He's not just a face on the sideline reading a paper. Correct. And you trust Eric there to make go. these calls. There you go. So his name was not at the top of a lot of teams' lists when it came time to look for head coaches. After that second Super Bowl appearance, do you think that the Rooney rule for someone, and we're not talking specifically about a brother like Eric, but do you think he just should just... How many black coaches right now just go, man, just let me just stay where I'm at. I'm not even going to go out there and have y'all making me look like a fool, mm. getting my hopes up, making me think you're going to hire me. Because mm. like, like, how much has the Rooney Rule created false hope in black candidates, thus keeping them from even going in for the interview, thus forcing the team, trying to meet the Rooney Rule requirements, to just scrape up any Negro they can find. Hey, you, you good at Madden, right? You want to be the head coach? <laughs> Come on in and interview real quick for the head coach. All right, get the hell out of here. <laughs> you played two-hand touch or recess, right? Uh, yeah, come yeah, on Has, has um, the Rooney Rule demoralized the hopes of black coaches that are qualified? You know, Roy, you make some valid points because Eric Bieniemy is one of those coaches every single season, every single offseason. I'm asking, why isn't he a head coach? I, I, I can't believe it. I'm asking people that are in the business, like, what's the deal? Like, don't tell me about who he is as a person or he's tough to get along with. Man, I've seen some jerks. I've seen some nice guys. I've seen everybody mm -hmm. in between get hired. You're telling me one of the greatest minds that we've seen over the last decade can't land a head coaching job? When I'm seeing guys that are less qualified go there and stumble their way through a few seasons and then get fired, it's frustrating. Um, but you're right, though. The if, Lions have a coach you never coached before. Listen. Not hating. Not, not calling. I'm just saying. Of course. Of course. Now, here's the thing. You, you make a point about the Rooney Rule as... As we look at it, it was supposed to be something that balanced things out, right? It gave us an even playing field, as we say in sports. Correct. But if I'm Eric Bieniemy, and I'm getting paid decent coin, not as much as he would as a head coach, I have a guy like Andy Reid, and shout out to Andy Reid, um, like other coaches out there who have been at the forefront of hiring men of color, even women in their organizations. Shout out Bruce Arians Bruce down Arians. in Tampa Bay. That's he left fact. Tampa Bay black as hell. He ain't lying. Bruce, <laughs> Bruce, Bruce Arians, is the real one. Bruce he won a Super Bowl and go, here you go, Todd Bowles, and here you go, Byron Left. What y'all handle this, Negroes? You ain't lying. Bruce. That's Bruce Almighty right there. Bruce is actually light-skinned. I don't know if you knew that. Um, but <laughs> so for, for me, you look at Eric Bieniemy. And if he's looking at the landscape of openings, he's probably thinking to himself, I'm not going to go in there as a token. Have you looked me in my face, pat me on my back, tell me how good I've done. And then as soon as I walk away, you make a de decision that we all knew you were going to make. And that's what Brian Flores said. Brian Flores said that, you know, th that's what this has become. Even though he was afforded an opportunity and he felt like he was shorted in that opportunity because of a lot of things that happened in Miami. But he's saying that's what this has become. As much as we wanted this Rooney rule to work, there are organizations that bring in an African-American candidate just so they can check the box because mm -hmm. they already have who they want in mind. What has the league done or has the league done enough, in your opinion, to try and punish owners for not taking the Rooney Rule seriously? And, and if not, what, what are some other ways that we can hold owners accountable? Because, you know, Stephen Ross, the owner of the Dolphins, he was only fined $1.5 million. And, you know, right. and they suspended him for a short time, you know, for trying to pay a black coach, you know, Flores, to, to lose games. We need you to lose right. games so we can get draft picks. And that's really more of a competition fine and punishment. That's more right. of a, you know you're breaking the rules type thing. You know, right. it, it's let that that punishment was rooted less in right. lack of diversity. But I think this is an issue that extends beyond the NFL, bro. How do you adjudicate diversity? It's tough. How, how do you, it's, it's like, how do you tax the wealthy? You know, how, how do you penalize individuals that own these teams, some in it for the right reasons? They love football. They want their organization to go down as a dynasty. Others who own teams as hobbies this is just another business mm -hmm. so you're finding an owner for not um meeting the qualifications um of this rooney rule and you tell them they can't 
be at the facility for a few weeks in the off season. Then they'll go hang out and kick it on their yacht and then come back and get ready for a new season. I, I'm, not, I'm not sure there's something you can necessarily do to the owners because when you're talking about fines, I can't even quantify it. You know, if, if you're finding a, a billionaire a million dollars, is, is that hurting his pockets? I think we all collectively can answer that. On the flip side, I think what the league has done and can continue to do more of is highlighting the 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 candidates and telling the stories of these candidates. Because whenever a head coach was hired back when I was playing, it was like this story. Oh, man, this, this new young offensive mind, he comes from the tree of the West Coast offense, and here's the, his father mm-hmm. who coached here, and he was part of this staff that won the Super Bowl, and they branched off to all these – and I'm by the time this guy walks in the building, I'm like, damn, I know this dude's whole story. I'm a fan. Yeah. It's like the we Buddy don't do, Ryan, Rex Ryan. Exactly. We don't do that yeah. enough for these African-American and candidates of color. Like, you don't even know these stories. You don't. You can't, you can't tell me – much about Byron Leftwich, aside from the fact that he, he played in the league and he was a quarterback with a big arm and now he's helping Tom Brady down in Tampa as a coach. But what's the story behind him? Like, tell his story. So I know the fans understand who love football, but these owners need to understand, don't just go with the hire that makes you comfortable. Go with the hire that is most qualified. There's a big difference. And I think also, you know, not just going with the hire that's the most qualified, but sticking with them and giving them time to get their system and their personnel in place, which the Houston Texans didn't do. And we're going to talk about that after the break. We're going to talk about the raw deal that the Houston Texans get. You got that black coach and then you ran his ass. This is beyond, man, I'm getting upset. This is beyond (laughs) the scenes. We'll be right back. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash news. That's lifelock.com slash news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Welcome back to Beyond the Scenes. We are talking football and the lack of diversity at the head coaching and the ownership front office areas with uh, Nate Burleson. Uh, After this break, we're also going to talk with the first black woman to be on the coaching staff of the NFL team. She is Colette V. Smith. But first, Nate, yeah. we've already talked about teams who are scared to hire or they have no intention of hiring a black coach. But let's talk about what happens when a black coach gets put in the game. Now, yeah. Yeah, that, yeah. That, that's the Southern talk right there. I know Got some the coach. Could not coach the coach. <laughs> coach. Hey there, coach. <laughs> the Houston Texans, they, they scoop up David Culley. Black right. man and a and a and a, and of course th- that's the other thing when a black man gets hired, boy, the press releases get to flying, boy. Look at the NFL and diversity, and we're doing yeah. it, and we've yeah. ended racism with this hire. Yeah. One season, four and thirteen, and he was let go by the Texans for what was called quote philosophical differences. How do you feel about the the recent conversations around black coaches being scapegoated for? lackluster production and do you think that they are given the same amount of runway 
Yeah. You know, I'm just being honest. Are they given the same amount of runway as white coaches to have time to get things right? In my time in the NFL, the answer is no. I don't think so. Just because of what I've seen. You gave one example. And of course, they did hire Lovey Smith, another black coach who's been in the system. So I, I even though I, I, I want everybody to get paid and Lovey Smith is a guy that um, players have spoke highly about. So I have nothing bad to say about him. But I do like fresh blood. Um, so, you know, seeing him get hired is great. Uh, but mm-hmm. I would love the next generation of coaches to come behind him. Um, I'll give you another one. Steve Wilkes was hired by the Arizona Cardinals. And he was fired after one season. I remember that because it was a big deal. I'm like, okay, the Cardinals got a new coach. Okay, Steve Wilkes. All right. And then they go 3-13, and 13, I believe. Now, 3-13 and 13 is not a good record. We get that. But what are you supposed to do? How are you supposed to turn around a squad in one year? Mm-hmm. How are you supposed to fix things in one year? How are you supposed to, for the example in Houston, change the quote-unquote culture, that is the philosophy of football in an organization, if you only have one year? There has never been this, this meteoric turnaround in one season when a coach is working with all of the drama that we've seen some of these coaches work with. Now, this isn't woe is me, all right? These coaches, they... They walk away with a little chunk of change, but I want to see coaches have the same amount of time to turn t- turn things around as some of these white coaches. And I'm not saying that hasn't been done, you know, because a lot of people say, mm-hmm. well, what about Marvin Lewis? Marvin Lewis was, he was out in Cincinnati forever and they didn't go to the playoffs. They didn't win a playoff game. Like, what he about was, Marvin? And it's yeah. like, I we get stuck what you're saying. There's, yeah. <laughs> but there's always an, there's an example. There's always an example to point to but you can't point to one coach and say, see, like, here you are. It's like it's like somebody saying, see, look, I got a black friend that but coaches. You know, it, it works. I think you also have to have a patient and tolerant ownership, which is what I think the Brown family in um, Cincinnati exhibited in showing that they are not here to just. Oh, one one bad season, get your ass on. Because it's not like the NFL. It's not like college football where you right. lose two years in a row. Like, all right, dog, the fans are turning on us. The NFL fans are the NFL fans. Here, yeah. Here's a here's an off-the-wall question. Mm-hmm. Do you think the high expectations of black coaches as soon as they come into the league is set because Mike Tomlin won the Super Bowl in his second year with the Steelers. Then yeah. Mike Tomlin for the net for 15 seasons, for 15 seasons has not had a losing season. Do you think it's Mike Tomlin's fault for being too good? Mike Tomlin, are you listening to me right now? Listen, Mike Tomlin, we need you to lose, okay? Yeah. We need you to go, we need you to go two and 15 the next three years in a row. For, do it for black people, Mike Tomlin. Okay. He, he he set the bar too hard. He set the bar too hard. Listen, and, I, and he get up there, he get to saying them words. He be like, "Listen, we, uh, you don't want to paint the team with a broad brush." I call him Barack Tomlin because he he go out there and win them games, and then he'll talk. To, hey, listen, they might have a bad game after you get done listening to him. You're like, you know what? Yeah, all right. I'm good with the but, Steelers. But Tomlin, Tomlin has done something, and I'm joking, of course. Steelers he's done fans. something very special. Yeah, you have stop, to give him credit for. Stop it. tweeting me, Steelers fan. I know you're about to tweet me. <laughs> Because I'm going to give Tomlin the props because he no picked up Brian Flores after the Miami fiasco and said, hey, brother, mm-hmm. come be on my staff. Come join yep. us. How much when we talk about diversifying and creating more of these qualified you know, applicants, and we spoke last break about what Bruce Arians was doing in Tampa with Todd Bowles being down there. And Bowles was yep. a former coach of the Jets and yep. things didn't go right for him when he yep. was coaching the Jets. Yeah. And you have Byron Leftwich in that system. How much of changing the culture at the head coaching position requires diversifying the offensive staff positions as well? Mm. Like, because Andy Reid blackened up his staff. Of course. Arians, Arians blackened up his staff. Tomlin was insulated with a couple other, you know, and Flores yeah. isn't the only one. How much yeah. of that is part of the solution to this issue? I think that's a huge part of it because head coaches have so much influence. Because when a head coach is successful, you listen to what they say about the X's and O's. Bruce Arians can stand up in front of the media and say, I would like to shout out my special teams coach, my defensive coordinator, and my offensive coordinator that are all black. Three black coordinators for his squad and say, these guys are the main reason why we are successful. And immediately as fans, 
as people who sit outside the game, your eyes turn to those coaches. We start paying attention to Leftwich more than ever before. We start looking at Bowles mm-hmm. and saying, you know what? He's pretty damn good. Maybe we gave him a raw deal when he was coaching for the Jets. We start looking at these coaches in a different light. And, and it is up to these head coaches that are in these positions to bring up and highlight these uh, candidates of color. So, you know, I, I, I hope that what we see over the next handful of years will change. It's funny, though, Roy, because every time the season nears an end, we hear about these young black coaches, a lot of them former players, who are tremendous coordinators, defensive side of the ball, offensive side of the ball. And we're like, oh, we got some, we got some good candidates, maybe. Let's go. Yeah. Seven or 11. And we crap out. And we're sitting back <laughs> where we started, and it's only three or four coaches that get hired at the most. Um, but I do feel like there is there is a shift coming. And I'm not being this, this eternal optimist because I played in the league and I'm working for the machine. One thing I pride myself on is being honest, even if it's with my former employee, the NFL. But I do feel like change is coming. But, Roy, let me ask you this, because I'm a fan, like I told you the first time we met a while ago, I'm a fan of you, I'm a fan of the genre, I'm a fan of comedy in general, I'm a huge fan of stand-up. Yes, sir. Thank you, brother. It's stand-up, not saying that there hasn't been discrimination or racism or even segregation. We know the history of where it was and where it is now. But I feel like, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, if you're good and you grind and you improve, you could make enough noise to where the opportunities come. Undeniable. And undeniable. I, you be, yeah, you're, you be effing undeniable. In football, you can be the enemy, Eric the enemy, be undeniable and still not get an opportunity. Is there a parallel when it comes to comedy and sports or is comedy, is comedy changed? Is the game changed for comedy? Social media created a new democracy that allowed mm. for places for artists who don't necessarily get the same mainstream exposure. Like if we're gonna go Big picture, we can make the argument that Bernie Mac was denied for a very mm. long time until Kings of Comedy and Spike Lee came along. And then even to a degree, Bernie had to draft off of Steve Harvey's sitcom success and D.O. Hughley's yeah. sitcom success and said being on uh, Steve's sitcom yep. for white execs to go, all right, what about that fourth one over there? Yeah, what about the dark skin one? He got a, he got a show in him. And yeah. even then, it took Larry Wilmore who was a vouch for and bonafide Hollywood writer at that time for him to pair it with Bernie and create what we know as the Bernie Mac show. So, right. you know, that's kind of the approach of being denied, but getting, but getting an assist or mm. someone else having to go, no, trust us, Bernie's the guy. Versus when you look modern age, um, I would say, you know, probably one of the quickest equivalencies I would make would be the 85 South show, which Oof. a lot of people listening to us right now don't know about. But these brothers do television broadcast numbers on YouTube mm. uh, excuse, uh, or the Try Guys. We'll get, yeah, yeah, the try. Yeah, yeah. But, but these shows. And, and they tour and they tour the country. Correct. And so and they sell twenty five hundred three thirty five hundred seats. Oof. 85 South. And mm. they have not had any mainstream television exposure except for wiling out with Nick Cannon. Right. right. So if you are good enough, mm. the people choose in entertainment. Mm. If anything, entertainment is set up where the people have more power than the ownership. And if I have mm. an audience, you can't deny me. In fact, you want me more because you think my audience is going to now come to your network. Mm. So... There is a worth in that, whereas in sports, yeah. the fans are the most powerless because the ownership knows that the fans will watch regardless. The NFL knows that. They know that regardless of what That's you do, you just you might not watch the whole game. All right, you might check in on highlights, but when we get that good free agent signing, your ass going to be back. That's and a there's fact. a lot of morality. There's a lot of things that teams do that where you can question the morality versus trying to win be it racism or be it just like it, it, you signed this player that committed that crime or did that thing. Right. How dare you? But people still rock with that team because they right. know the fans will be there. Especially if they win. Especially if they win. Television and movies is different, bro, because if I got an audience, low key, I don't need you. Mm. You need mm. me. 
And that's, that's why you see a lot of social media stars who get cast in a lot of mainstream stuff because they need that. The studios need access to their audience and to their yeah. reach and the things that they do, you know? And so I think that, you know, to a degree, there's still a lot of racism and not a lot of black decision makers at the top right. of a lot of these um, entertainment structures. But at the end of the day, I think that I have way more of a chance of getting put on and getting diverse and getting diversified. Issa Rae made a way for herself. Mm. Quinta Brunson made a way for herself. Yeah. You know, and, which oddly enough, both of those women also still have ties back to Larry Wilmore. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah. in terms of creating an audience and a buzz for herself, those two women were self-made. And they mm. just woke up every day with a camera with whatever lights they could afford at the time and created content until people yeah. started rocking with them. And mm. so it, it's tough. It's like at yeah. least I'll put it this way. An entertainer has an advantage over a black coach. I can at least get myself to second base without Ooh. a vouch. Now you preaching, you preaching. And, and listen, you opened up, you know, this podcast, today's episode by mentioning the lack of not just black head coaches, but then you went on to say no ownership. I mean, th there's also, there's also this, this like glaring, like bolded, font that you see when you realize there are no black owners in the NFL when I know that there's wealthy black men and black men and women, excuse me, black men and mm -hmm. women that want to be majority owners. I'm not saying, let me correct that. I know there might be minority owners, but majority owners. Um, and I think that there also needs to be more of that because listen, the only way you shake some of these very loaded phrases that people throw around, like the good old boys club. The only way that professional sports can shake that is by diversifying itself. And if you're looking at the numbers, we've seen the studies. Diversification, when it comes to the corporate infrastructure, oftentimes breeds more success. So I know that the bottom line is to sell tickets, right? And, and have good football and, and you got to get the merchandise off and you want this organization to go from being what the Cowboys used to be to a four, five, six billion dollar brand. Okay, mm -hmm. diversify your product. And I guarantee these organizations will see more success than they've ever seen. How much, here, here's a here's an off the wall question. And I think it's from a political standpoint, where we're eventually headed as a people when it comes mm -hmm. to race and identity as the next generation of black people and mixed race people and BIPOCs, et cetera, start matriculating into, you know, their adult lives. Mm -hmm. The coach for the Dolphins, Michael McDaniel, who is one of three head coaches that yeah. are black in the league. You got Lovey in Houston. You got Mike Tomlin, excuse me. Well, you say... Baracko Tomlin, Barack, <laughs> Barack Tomlin, yeah. Baracko Tomlin in Pittsburgh and Michael McDaniel. Right. Now, Michael McDaniel has a black father, but he doesn't necessarily choose to identify as black. He doesn't deny it, but he right, ain't out the, the black and the black and uh, black right. college and black and the black. And you got to put gravy and I like yeah. biscuits in it. Like he's not yeah, yeah. black in that sense. It would be a little odd, though, if he hasn't been doing that his whole <laughs> life. And a reporter asks a question, he's like, my brother, good question. All right. Um, yeah. And then he. <laughs> But you he know. is, he does check the boxes per the Rooney rule. And I know him. He was I, I know him. Yeah. No, I'm yeah, not, yeah. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not dumping on him. What I'm, what I'm, what I'm, the question I'm getting at is how black does that even matter in terms of the league is pushing his identity more than he's pushing it himself. Agreed. Why do you think the league chooses to do that? I think we know the answer to that. The league chooses to do that is because it's, it's another box checked. And, and Mike McDaniel you know, he's an individual that didn't lean on that throughout his coaching career. It wasn't like, hey, yo, man, you know, it's like, uh, what was that movie, uh, Soul Man? He's not moving around like, <laughs> he's not like, hey, hey, yo, hey, my brother. Oh, yeah, the I white guy me, acting black. Yeah, I remember yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. But, um, and Mike McDaniel is just a guy that that's grinded. He, he's he's grinded. And more than, more than his race checking the box, um, he is a recipient of that tree that I was talking about earlier. You have to think about, uh, Al Shanahan, who coaches the Niners, Sean McVay, who coaches the Rams, and Mike McDaniel were all on the same staff 
um, in Washington. They were part of this this group that saw some offensive success. And then organizations were like, okay, that was a really good offense. Let me pluck from that staff. And it just so happened that on that staff were three very intelligent, young, offensive-minded white coaches. They can't mm-hmm. help the color of their skin. They can't help the system they were in. And they, for, for damn sure, aren't going to apologize for having a successful offense. <laughs> the difference is there should be more eyes on successful offenses that are loaded with African-American coaches as well. Where do we, and this is the last question. I know I know we have to get you out of here and we got to talk to- It's all uh, good, brother. Coach Got Collette. all the time in the world. This is a question that's weird. I'm trying to figure out the, listen, I'm trying to help you keep your job. Like every every question I ask you, I'm in my head, I'm going, make sure Nate can keep his job. Make sure Nate keeps getting invited to NFL honors <laughs> during Pro Bowl. I'm good. I'm good. Ask away, bro. Be honest. I got you. I'm trying to get to the importance of how having a black head coach or having black coaches, period, on your staff makes your team better. In a league with majority black players, Yeah. when you were playing, how much more? And this goes back to college, too. We can go yeah. all the way back. to I ain't just here to just talk about yeah. Your time in the NFL, just as a foot. Well, let's go back to Pop Warner, all the way to CFL with you. Right. Did you feel a different connection when you had black coaches in any capacity on the staff? Was there a different as a black player? Was there a different connection? Did, was there anything that resonated for you in yeah, that time? Of, of course. Listen, representation matters on every level. When you walk in and you see somebody that looks like you, um. Uh-uh. There's a comfort level there that you immediately embrace. Um, you know, that doesn't mean that every black coach is going to identify with every black player. I mean, there's some black coaches who didn't come from struggle and they're not going to be able to talk to a kid that was raised in a house full of six brothers and sisters and they were on welfare. Maybe a yeah. black coach that was raised in Bel Air won't be able to talk to that kid in the way that he needs to. Maybe there's a white coach that struggled and grew up in harsh conditions and might be able to talk to that black kid um, a little bit more um, intimately. But when you have representation of African-American coaches on your staff in the team, when you sit in that locker room and you're taking your cleats off and you look around and you see a sea of black people sprinkled in with some white players, you would hope that your staff also reflects that. One, because you feel like it's only fair. I mean, the odds are that all of these black players that love the game so much, that literally put all their eggs in this basket. Once that basket was empty, went and got some more football legs to put it in. And then once they retired, they went and got them retirement football legs to put it in that same (laughs) basket. These same players are some of the most beautiful. I'm talking about Russell Crowe, beautiful minds that could coach at the next level. So we, when we don't see that, we're like, all right, so we're good enough to go out here and get paid to play, but we're not good enough to get paid to lead. So there's, there lies the resentment and anger. But when you do have that, it's just different. Like you can mm-hmm. walk upstairs and, and I can talk to a white coach and we can sit there and, and chop it up about anything. And I might have something that might be a little bit more personal and I can go out his office and walk to a coach like Sean Jefferson, who was my receivers coach, black former player who is still coaching the league. And I can walk in his office and have a completely different conversation because there's that connection. Coaches that understand that and they diversify their staff, there's there's less friction. There's more cohesiveness. There's less issues off the field because it's one thing for, you know, let me, let me keep it all the way 100. It's one thing for a coach to look at a young black player who never had money and tell him what he should be doing, how he should be moving, how he should be acting. Mm -hmm. It's another thing for a black man to talk to a young black man who might not have necessarily had an older brother or father figure or someone to speak encouragement, intelligence, to speak great vibrations into this man's life. It's different when a black coach does that. Like I've had those moments where a black coach will walk in after something that happened over the weekend <laughs> and he'll be like, hey, listen, listen, man, close, close them books up. We'll watch film in a little bit. And hey, y'all better tighten up. You see what happened this weekend? 
See old boy wilding out there in them streets? He's done. He's done. That contract that he thought he was going to get? No more. Mark my words, he will never play again. So if y'all F around and fumble this bag, like we tell you not to fumble a football, uh-huh. you'll be sitting at home at your mama house. So don't walk around here with your chest out and your chin up thinking you God's gift to football because the game was here before you. It will continue while you're here and for damn sure it's going to continue afterwards. That's different when you're looking at someone that almost looks like a mirror reflection. So that's, to answer your question in a very long-winded way, that's why it's important to have that representation. And you see you see that. Like, I'm not saying that, that Tampa doesn't have any issues, but Tampa got a lot of black coaches. I don't see I don't see the Tampa Bay Buccaneers wilding out. Now, there's also leadership, Bruce Arians, and there's Tom Brady who comes in as a veteran. He's been there, done that, and won some Super Bowls. Tom can tell people, like, look, the way we do it, the way we win it is we tighten up in all areas, on and off the field. Okay, cool, but... There's also like, it's it's just different when you when you see people that look like you speaking life into you. Yes, sir. Well, I respect that. Also, you know, Tom Brady dedicated. He gave up his marriage. <laughs> okay, nah. I, I shouldn't have said. Listen, that. they, they working it out. That. They working it out. That's what we heard. <laughs> Word on the street. Well, Nate Brolson, thank you so much. We love you every morning on CBS Mornings as well. I appreciate Send you. Send the best to everybody over there, Gail and. Everybody else and the homie Vlad, everybody over there. Yeah, no doubt. I'll I'll tell Vlad and and Gail and Tony you said what's up. And listen, before you get me out of here, I just want to say I appreciate you. Been a fan of yours for a long time. I know you have been doing this for decades. And uh, a lot of the work that you have done, not everybody sees, um, but you are one of the leaders, um, not just in in a comedic space, but I've seen you grow into this businessman who works in front of the camera and behind it and i don't know if you get your flowers a lot but you deserve it man you deserve it anytime i see your name or hear your voice my ears perk up man because i know you're either going to be dropping knowledge or you're going to have me in tears and that's quite the combination brother thank you so much for that and i appreciate you for coming and going beyond the scenes with us no doubt let me get some free nfl tickets I, i got you tell me the game i got you Dolphin. Tell me the game. I'll hook the you Dolphins up. Dolphins just came to New York. Damn, never mind. Uh, uh, next season. <laughs> After the break, we will speak with Colette V. Smith, who was the first black woman coach in the NFL during her time with the New York Jets. We'll talk with her after the break. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Giancarlo Esposito, and I'm here to introduce you to my character, Gray Parrish, from my new series, Parrish. Yeah, I can drive. My character was a getaway driver. Yeah! I'm retired from life. You know that. His business is failing. His house is going up for sale. He is the everyman. Tell me about this driver job. We got a lot of action in this show. We have moments of real danger. And we want to feel as if anything could happen. Gray is invited to drive for this man. He's invited to make money, and he quickly realizes this is not the right thing to do. I did what you told me to. And he's in a world over his head. Now, let's go! He will try to do what's right and seek justice. Parish, all new Sundays at 9 on AMC and stream on AMC+. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash iHeart. That's LifeLock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. 
Beyond the scenes, we are back. Now, we are still talking about black coaches in the NFL. Joining me now is a former coach for the New York Jets. And, you know, the way the Jets are looking these days, she might need to go on and go back talk to them a little bit. But more importantly, she was the first black female coach in the NFL. Colette V. Smith, Coach Smith, how you doing today? <laughs> What's happening, Roy Wood? It's nice to see you. I'm doing good. Now, is the job occupation of coach like president where even when you're not doing it no more, you are still coach and you get Absolutely. referred to? Absolutely. Okay. Nobody wants to come to my house to watch football because I'm pausing, muting, freezing the frame, checking out the alignment, the foot positioning, and people get why? mad. And I'm like, you can leave my house. It's fine. <laughs> why are you having a tape session in the middle of a Super Bowl party, coach? That's not how you're supposed to watch football. It is. Then you, your ass need to go in the other room, like Peyton Manning and them. You need to have a separate Manning cast while the rest of us. I take notes. I send notes to my former players, wherever they are, with the Bears, the Seahawks. I'm like, I was watching your game. Here's what you did wrong. Here's what you did right. I can't help myself. So at that time, you were one of one, you know, in terms of becoming the first black female coach Mm -hmm. to be in the NFL ranks. How did you get there? But more importantly, did you ever realize how much of a unicorn you were while you were setting setting down this path? You know what? I never I never thought about that I might have been a unicorn in in this arena. Um, for me, I just loved football, and I started playing football when I was forty two years old, I, professionally at least. You know, I played with the boys in the street when I was a kid but I wasn't allowed to play organized football with Pop Warner. How absurd is that? So, for instance... And Pop Warner's age where the girls are bigger than the boys. That part. We outgrow boys in the the early stages. You're right. But I wasn't allowed to play organized. So being a coach in the NFL was not a dream. How could I have that dream? That dream was stolen from me. So, um, you know, Billie Jean King... Billie Jean King was the one that brought it to my attention that I was the first black woman to coach NFL history. And I looked at her like she was crazy. So you start playing organized ball at 42. First off, what leagues are going on for 42 year old women? What, where, what was this? How did I, cause I love football. I watched that video yeah. game football. They show on the weird video yeah. game channel. Right. It was like watching people play. Oh, ball. that's so dope. It is fly. That's fly. Yeah. But, but it's not necessarily a league for women in their 40s. It's just a league for w- women. So 18 and older, and there is no Dope. cutoff. So if you're capable, physically capable to do this, and you make the tryouts, you're in. So I was the old chick on the team. <laughs> <laughs> so you play, you leave, and then at that point, is it the traditional post playing trajectory that you had the same as the men where you played organized and then you find your way into different organizations. Did you know any other women that were coaching in the league at the time? Like just, just, just (laughs) set up the breadcrumbs of how you end up in the office of the New York jets and them going to you, you're hired. So when I started playing football professionally, I wasn't a great player, but I was a great scholar of the game. So I had more bench time than I did on field time, but I was watching film and I was studying our opponents and I was reading the playbook and asking questions. And so eventually when I retired from playing women's pro football, I went into Mm -hmm. coaching my women's team, which was scary as hell. Uh, But why? why was that scary? Because my teammates, my peers, these are players that played better than me but I knew what to do in my brain. My body was like, we ain't having that, you know? (laughs) So it was scary to go from your girl, like what up homie to, okay, I need two lines right now. We're working on W drills. We're covering deep pass today, line up. That was hard to do. So eventually I made that happen. It was a hard transition, but I was up for the challenge. Eventually my women's team had made me the executive director over marketing PR uh, events, all this stuff. So being a Jets fan, a lifelong tired Jets fan, I uh, reached out to the New York Jets to say, hey, look, we need some help over here. We're your sisters. What's up? And I probably wore them out. Like I was calling, 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 calling. 
And I believe they were just like, let us just call this chick back because she going to keep calling if we don't just give her a call. But when mm-hmm. they called me, we were cool. Every, they loved me, rightfully so. Okay. And um, I got invited to a, a Jets practice. And at Roy, at that time, I was like, I'm busy. I'm doing real estate. I'm doing football. I'm coaching. <laughs> I'm doing the marketing. I don't got time for this. Then I, when I thought about it, I said, I could learn from NFL coaches so I could bring that high level of coaching skills back to my women. So I went. But what ended up happening was I met the then head coach of the New York Jets, Coach Todd Bowles, one of the very few black men that are in head coach positions. And he and I talked shop. Yeah, he's in Tampa Bay now. Yes, and he's got his championship ring. Yeah, Yeah, he does. But so I, I got hired directly through him. I didn't come through a program. I didn't come from anybody's, you know, from the Rooney Rule or the Bill Watts. Diversity initiative. And, uh, we're, right. I, yeah. I came in because I had a jackhammer, you know, and I just came banging on in. And uh, we talked shop. And he realized I was serious about this and I knew my stuff. So he gave me a shot. Okay. But then being that you didn't come through those traditional avenues of hire or the let's just call it the affirmative action highway Mm -hmm. for lack of a better phrase did that gain you more respect or less respect from the other players and coaches while you were within the jets organization like how much how you were hired bowls brought you in so to a degree that protects you because people have to trust you based on his pedigree correct but when bowls ain't around everybody knows that the energy can sometimes shift Mm -hmm. so how respected were you within the organization amongst the other players and coaches? Because you're the first black woman to be on an NFL sideline. Like, yeah. this is not, Yeah, this is new for them too. Yeah, totally. Um, I, You know, I, I came in, all of the players gave me the utmost respect. And I don't think anybody knew per se that I didn't come in through a program, that I was hired directly through their head coach. That wasn't talked about. If it was, I wasn't in that room or on that phone call, but the players were great. You know, to be very clear here, there's always gonna be one sucker. <laughs> one <laughs> guy that's hard to deal with. And I had one, he was a coach and he did not make my life comfortable by any means. And he let me know it. And that was challenging. Do you think how much of that was based on you snuck in because you're a woman or just because you're a woman? Like, you didn't go through what I consider to be the proper trajectory or was it strictly flat out, you're a woman, I don't care what you know, I don't care how cool your schemes are and what plays you draw up, you need to be in the kitchen. Yeah, you know what? I really don't know why. I believe it's because who she thinks she is. And Mm. when I tell you our very first conversation with this particular coach, he looked at me, i never forget, he was sitting there at his desk like this. And I walked in excited. And I was like, I know where you played, I know where you coach, I know where you scouted. I've been following you, I did my research. And he looked at me and then he turned back to the computer like I wasn't even there. And I backpedaled. So if anybody knows anything about football, playing a defensive back, that's what I played and coached. I backpedaled out the office like, what in tarnation is going on? I'm thinking I'm getting hazed or this is a joke. Yeah. He kept it going. He kept it going. Talk to me a little bit just in terms of persevering through that and being a woman in that space. Because like, if there's people like that within, within an organization, then there have to be people like that in theory somewhere in the front offices, which means there has to be people like that on high in New York at the NFL at the league office level. So, like, when we look at the Rooney Rule, we were talking earlier to Nate about the Rooney Rule. Like, you know, do you think that's still effective in terms of figuring out a way to create a diversity pipeline into the NFL or have teams figured out a way around it? Like, are they kind of like kind of like with the Brian Flores Dolphins lawsuit where you interviewed me, but you already knew who you was going to hire and you just brought me in on a dummy run? Like, is the Rooney Rule still doing anything to fix the problems? I think without the Rooney rule, we'd have less minorities in the NFL. I think there should be more, but I think that people have learned the loopholes around the Rooney rule. Hmm. You know, um, I mean, I, it, it's disgusting what goes on, but what happens is it's a good old boys club. 
right? It's the good old boys club. I know you from LSU or from Oklahoma State or the Ohio State. Or you're my child. Hood friend or, right? <laughs> and that yeah. part, nepotism, right? I'm, I'm happy the Rooney rule is there, but I don't think it's being utilized completely the right way, right? And so we're always on a continuous, when I say we, I mean black folks. We're always trying to prove ourselves all the time. There are some skilled ass coaches that need to be in head coach positions, right? Mm -hmm. But we have more work to do. You know, we can't micromanage everybody. And at the end of the day, you know, a franchise, a particular team, should have some kind of right to how they handle their team. But you have to abide by these rules. So they're finding loopholes. How much, you know, and again, your, your, your situation was a little different in how you got in with the Jets, but how much does the Rooney Rule also create a traumatic experience for the black or women candidates for these jobs by giving them false hope and then having it dashed? Does that make it worse for black and women candidates trying to enter into the league? No, that's life. That's what we've experienced our whole life, right? Whether it be corporate level, I know that firsthand. You know, I could come in more qualified than the next person for a corporate job in, New York, in Manhattan and I don't get the job and I find out who did. I'm like, I'm more qualified than she is. <laughs> so this is, this is not, I'm not new to that game probably most of us are not new to that game. I think just having our foot in the door can actually bring us more hope. Like I was close, so I'm gonna keep pounding. Okay, but then to that point, does it, because based on what you said, what you said, mm -hmm. an assistant coach at the Jets giving you the ice grill, even though you were qualified, even though you came in baptized with the blessings of his boss, mm -hmm. Does this new rule, so the NFL got this new rule, right? Where all 32 teams, you got to either have a female or a person of color as an offensive assistant. This is mandated diversity. Those candidates who were hired based on their mandate, mm -hmm. of course it increases the number of coaching opportunities, you know, whatever, like you can build your way up, but are, does that force them into a hostile work environment? Is it a good way to increase numbers? I mean, I think it's a great way to increase numbers. Um, but l listen, it's a roll of the dice. You know, I could be mandated to be hired by the Rooney rule, okay, by the mandate. I'm, I'm in here and you don't like that, but I'm gonna come in here and work my butt off and you're gonna see why I'm here, right? It's just mm -hmm. fair. It's just completely fair. And so, I mean, I don't think anything scares us. What I, I don't think about the future like that when it comes to well, it might be hostile, it might not be. This coach that was that was wrong to me. I, I'll tell you something, Roy. My dad and I would speak on the phone every night and say, "Hey, how was it?" He would ask me, "How was it today?" I'm like, "Oh my God, it's great. I love it. I love it. I love it, and I love it more." But there's this one jerk. And after a few days of this, or a week or two of this, my dad was like, why don't you speak to, you know, why don't you tell Bowles? And I said, I'm the only woman coach up in here. I'm not about to be like, he's not treating me nice. I'm not gonna be that chick. So I just dealt with it the best I could. Coach Bowles knew nothing about it. Uh, other coaches saw the way he would treat me. Players saw it, you know? And it wasn't like he was, he was saying anything nasty to me. His look alone was almost like, shut up. Or if I was coaching, he would walk in and Roy and give me a look. And then I was like. Do you think that, I think I know the answer to this question, but it, it, if I'm thinking it, I know our listeners are thinking it, so I got to ask you. What responsibility, if any, do the other staffers have to making sure that diversity hires are treated with some degree of respect? Or is it not their responsibility to go around and police every meanie within the organization? As a human being, I think everybody has a responsibility to check that, right? But then as a coach, we don't have time to be worrying about outside things that are actually inside, but we're getting our job done. So the other coaches that saw it, that may have seen it, 
they would look like, damn. And then we would do some strategizing on special teams. So, it, you know, everybody was just trying to stay dedicated to the game plan at hand. And that was to have the best team and create the best players that we can get. So by solving the problem, it almost creates a distraction to a degree. Correct. Within the organization. Yeah. Well, there has been some degree of progress. Last year in the league, we had six women coaches. This year, there's 15. Mm-hmm. Are you happy with the increase in women coaches since you became a coach? But more importantly, is what's happening now with the 32-team mandate, is that the best way to achieve diversity in the league? Listen, any way to get us in there is the best way. <laughs> Otherwise, we wouldn't have been, right? <laughs> so, listen, if I had it my way, I would drive up with a van filled filled with serious women coaches and I drive to every team, every franchise team and say, here, you got two. Bye. <laughs> and I, then I drive to the next team. Drop like a them newspaper off. delivery, you just throwing, Bam, just throwing throw women out the window like a newspaper. <laughs> so then let's let let's end here. Um, why why is it important for the NFL to hold the team owners accountable? You know, to the diversity and inclusion regulations that they put in place. Because like, you can have all these regulations, but if ownership gonna work around them, what the hell are we accomplishing? Like like when you look at like, and I know this isn't apples to apples, but when you look at what's happening in the NBA with the Phoenix Suns, and you have an owner mm-hmm. that is now being forced to sell his team on some Donald Sterling, L.A. Clippers-esque, <laughs> we found racism in the documents. And then mm-hmm. the John Gruden being forced to resign from the Las yeah. Vegas Raiders because we found racism in the documents. And yeah. then the, the Washington Commanders Right, also right, right. Being rumored to have a bunch of nonsense being going on behind the scenes that's rooted in a lot of racism and discrimination. So, you know, how important is it that the league do what they need to do to make sure that the owners are held accountable? Vitally, vitally important. And I'm down with that life. I'm down with it because if we don't get it checked, if the NFL league as a whole does not check these owners, these team owners, it will just keep happening and we'll be nowhere further in 20 years than we were 50 years ago. So that's progress to me. I'm excited. Listen, I'm extremely proud of what the NFL is trying to do to make positive change within this league for diversity Mm -hmm. and inclusion. I lied. One more question. Do you think the fans care? Do you think they know or care about the imbalance ratio between coaches and players? Like, Not you know, all the fans got... give a crap. Not all of them give a crap. They just want to see their team win. But I tell you this, the black fans care and the women mm. care. Mm. And if you think about this, women make up damn near 50% of viewership, purchasing of apparel, paraphernalia. So they better treat us right. And listen, if we were all to get together, we'd be in the minority. We ain't. I said ain't. We ain't the minority. Let's be very clear about that. So y'all are the fiscal majority, but <laughs> when it comes to staffing, y'all are 2%. Hello. Right. So We've hired our one woman. Perhaps you would like to be a lowly paid cheerleader for $75 a game? Hmm? <laughs> That's a damn shame. They're athletes. No, and, we don't uh, care. and while we're talking we about the cheerleaders, the I don't care. Look, put some clothes on them chicks, okay? Now, hang on, now, hey, slow down, now. Put now, some I was with on you. Them. Now, look, I've been with you this whole conversation. You're starting to lose me, okay? But now, listen, if that's the case, I would love to see the players walk around or run around the field in a jockstrap, okay? We don't do that. <laughs> put some clothes on those women. Okay. Oh, my goodness. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. And let's not Thank think you. the next time we see each other at a Knicks game a year from now, please. I'll see you there soon. Pretty please. Yes, okay. sir. Colette V. Smith. Excuse me. Coach. <laughs> always. Once a coach, always a coach. Always coach a Colette coach. V. Smith. Thank you so much for going beyond the scenes with us today. Thank you. Of course. And also, thank you to the homie Nate. And thank you, the listener, for going beyond the scenes. We'll see you later. Listen to The Daily Show Beyond the Scenes on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah. 
You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. Awards Watch says Liam Neeson is at his best. Don't miss In the Land of Saints and Sinners. Having left his dark past behind, retired hitman Finbar Murphy, played by Neeson, leads a quiet life in a remote coastal Irish town. But when a menacing crew of terrorists arrive, Finbar is drawn into a vicious game of cat and mouse, forcing him to choose between exposing his secret identity or defending his friends and neighbors. In the land of saints and sinners, from Samuel Goldwyn Films and Sony Pictures Home Entertainment, watch it now on digital. Rated R.